From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Bad Mexicans. That's what the revolutionaries of 1910 were called as they fought on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border against the robber barons and their political allies. Kelly Little Hernandez tells that story in her new book. We'll speak with her later in the show. But first, the Supreme Court's coming repeal of constitutional protection for abortion leaves us with a lot of work to do. Katha Pollitt will talk about what we need to do now. That's coming up in a minute. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Today we're going to talk about abortion, but we're not going to complain about the Supreme Court or denounce the Republicans who put those people on the court. Today we're going to talk about all the work we need to do now to deal with the coming end of constitutional protection for abortion. And for that, we turn, of course, to Katha Pollitt. She's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, usually we blame some of our friends and allies for what's gone wrong, for not doing enough. Sometimes we even blame the pro-choice movement. It's true. The pro-choice movement is coming in for a lot of criticism. And maybe the most important thing is being too white, too upper middle class, not connected enough to the actual women who end up having abortions, who are disproportionately black and brown. So there's a lot of turmoil in the pro-choice movement right now. But you know what? In terms of this specific Alito decision and what's happening now with the probable overturn of Roe v. Wade, I don't think that is really relevant at all, because what's happened is that Trump got on the got into the White House despite having three million fewer votes. He got to put uh, three anti-choice justices on the Supreme Court and really doesn't have anything to do with the nature of our movement. So we have work to do and we have some great people and organizations who know how to do it, who we can help support work with. We expect 26 states to ban or greatly restrict abortion as soon as the court makes its announcement, which will almost certainly be sometime this month. Your latest column for the nation includes a list of ways to fight for abortion rights now. I see that winning elections is at the top of your list. It's number one. And we do have primaries underway this month and next month. And of course, we have a big midterm election in November. Let's talk about winning elections. Well, uh, my dear friend, Francis Kisling, says, just give up on the red states. 
the pro-choice movement has worked very hard to um, elect people there with not much success. And it's time. I mean, remember the massive shower of gold for Wendy Davis in Texas? That was a complete failure. (laughs) And she thinks we should shift our focus to the blue states and shoring up abortion rights there and providing actual services, such as organizing travel from abortion banned states. But I don't agree with her about abandoning the red states. It's going to take a really long time, I think, to uh, win the state legislatures back. But I think if we give up on that, our problems are only going to get worse. And there are some purple states that we could be shoring up too, like Pennsylvania, for example. And there are some states where the state legislatures are close to having democratic control. Arizona and Michigan. Uh, Arizona electing one more Democrat in each of the state houses will give Democrats a majority in the state of Arizona. In uh, in Michigan, I understand it's something like three seats in the state legislature. And of course, Democratic governors can veto laws passed by Republican state legislatures. So there's a lot of political work to be done, even in those states which are which are close, but currently under Republican control. Right. And there's a very good point. And I think one way I would criticize not just the pro-choice movement, but Democratic voters and liberal voters is they don't pay enough attention to the state legislatures. This is where abortion law is made. We focus obsessively on the White House, which, of course, you have to do, and on federal races, which, of course, you have to do. But the state legislatures are really important. And we have really not done enough there. And it's going to take a while because we're really far down in most of these states, not in Arizona and Michigan, though. So let's Let's go. Go, Michigan. There's an organization called the States Project, which has actually done the work of finding the closest states, the closest races in those states, the best chances of winning. The States Project has done all the work uh, on that. And then let's talk about the blue states. There's a lot of work to be done in the blue states, too. Of California, where I live right now, uh, they think that the number of people who will come to California for abortion care will increase from 46,000, which it was last year, to something like 1.4 million. Uh, That's going to require a lot more doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, and so on. And that takes us to the second item on your list, the medical profession. What do we need to do there? Well, you know, most OBGYNs will not perform abortions. Um, And that's kind of shocking because abortion is something that one in four women will have in the course of their reproductive life. And it's just part of regular health care. And it should be treated that way. Many medical schools don't teach the procedure at all, and we need to make them do that because routine gynecological care is what abortion is. And then there's the whole question of hospitals. The economics of running a standalone clinic are very daunting, especially given low reimbursement rates from Medicaid. And that's one reason clinics have been closing, even in blue states. So hospitals could take on some of this work, but very few do. In 2017, they performed only 3% of abortions. That includes secular non-Catholic hospitals, which is interesting because we always hear about how awful the Catholic hospitals are on everything having to do with uh, reproductive health care. And that's all true. That's not going to change. I mean, you know, the Pope is the Pope. 
but the other, the secular ones, don't have the religious excuse. And we could be doing a lot, I think, to pressure them to perform abortions. And we also need to encourage, help more people become doctors and nurses and nurses assistants to provide abortion medical services. In California, the legislature is creating a California Reproductive Scholarship Corps, which will provide funds for people to get trained. Everything from nursing assistants up up to physicians. This also has to include we are reminded, people from diverse backgrounds, people who are willing to work in rural and remote areas. So this is a place where the politics of state funding and expanding medical care are both engaged. Well, California is really out there in front. And another state, I want to say a word for my part-time home state, Connecticut. Connecticut has passed a package of laws which not only will give state constitutional protection for abortion, but laws that will protect providers, abortion travelers, and those who help them from the legal reach of anti-abortion states. Because as you may know, people are talking about, well, say you live in Missouri and you come to Connecticut for your abortion, can Missouri sue the people who give you that abortion? And that's all to be decided. But Connecticut is not going to turn anybody in. So that's great. And it also does the thing with codifying the right of some non-MD medical workers to perform some abortions and to give out abortion pills. So that's all really good. So number one was politics. Number two was expanding medical care. And number three, only number three on your list. A lot of people would put this number one is money, money from donors. But who should you give money to? Where are the most important places? You know, when people think abortion rights, the first thing they think of is Planned Parenthood. But Planned Parenthood is an immensely wealthy organization. Their their most recent financial report shows they have $2 billion in their endowment, and they just got $275 million more from Mackenzie Scott, the divorced ex-wife of Jeff Bezos. Planned Parenthood LA, where I lived, I looked them up. They have $100 million in assets and $20 million in annual contributions. They, they do fantastic work. You know, they run, they run all the clinics. But even Planned Parenthood says that other groups should get money before them, especially groups that serve, you know, the underserved people of color in more remote and rural areas. You've been writing about this for decades. How should you make contributions most effectively to promote abortion rights? Remind us of some of your favorite groups here and where to start. I'll do that in a minute, but I want to just correct something you said. Planned Parenthood does not perform the majority of abortions in the United States. Those are performed by independent abortion clinics, um, and they are usually the last. I mean, some of them are doing really well and others are struggling along, partly because of this Medicaid reimbursement thing and other reasons. So people go to Planned Parenthood because it's, you know, it's the branded banner place. But they should also think about giving money to abortion funds. And what these are are often volunteer organizations that raise money to help low-income women and others pay for their abortion care. This is very, very important. And they're having their fundathon now, which is unfortunately over by the time uh, this piece will run. You can still give money. You can still give money. Just go to NNAF 
abortionfund.org. Find your own, you know, there, there, there are almost 100 abortion funds. The and National Network of Abortion yeah. Funds, NNAF.org. And there are almost 100 funds, and you can find one that's near you and support it, or one that's not near you, uh, support a whole bunch. And, you know, if they had more money, their money goes very directly to helping, helping patients. And that is what we need to do. We need to help poor people get their abortion care. Well, thanks to you, I looked up the NNAF list of grassroots organizations for my home state of Minnesota, and I looked up Duluth. The NNAF group in Duluth is called the Hot Dish Militia, H-O-T-D-I-S-H, an acronym, Hand Over the Decision, It's Healthcare, Hot Dish. (laughs) Which, of course, is a big Minnesota thing. All Minnesota politicians have to be able to cook hot dish, and it's kind of casserole. Different counties have different favorite hot dishes. And the Hot Dish Militia provides financial support for people seeking abortion services in Duluth. And they also engage in political action. They're 100% volunteer-led. They have a book group. And they have the annual Hot Dish Bake Off, which this year raised $20,000. So that's just one of the 90 groups in the National Network of Abortion Funds. And there's lots of other wonderful ones. There's also a group I'd like to recommend, which is the Bridget Alliance. And what the Bridget Alliance does, which is based in New York City, it covers the cost of everything you need to get your abortion if you have to travel, except for the abortion itself, which funds will pay for. So they will cover the cost of transportation, food, lodging, childcare, whatever the patient needs. You know, here's the a little bit, it's not discouraging, but it shows what we're up against. The average client of Bridget Alliance needs a thousand dollars. Yeah, and studies have found that fewer than four in 10 people have enough savings to pay for an unexpected $1,000 expense So this is really a big thing for for people who find themselves with an unwanted uh, surprise pregnancy. Planned Parenthood emphasizes the importance of supporting groups engaged with reproductive justice, which is the lives of poor people and people of color. And they list in particular Sister Song, Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, the largest multi-ethnic reproductive justice collective. They recommend the Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. They recommend We Testify, which amplifies the stories of people of color who've had abortions. And in Texas, they recommend something called the AFIA Center, A-F-I-Y-A. And Planned Parenthood lists these ahead of giving money to Planned Parenthood. So I like that. One other thing that many groups like the ACLU put on their what you can do list is tell your story, especially if you're an older woman who got an abortion before it was legal. And we know some of these people. We do indeed. And I think that is very important. Um, I think that one of the problems with the whole abortion situation is that abortion is so stigmatized. People think they don't know anyone who has one. They have a lot of stereotypes in their mind. For example, well, abort- people who have abortions, they're these cold-hearted career women. They're people who hate children. They're sluts. They're too lazy to use birth control. All kinds of stuff like that. They don't know that the person, a person in their family 
has had an abortion. Um, their best friend has had an abortion because it's so shameful. People just put the experience out of their minds. And I think it's really helpful if people can talk about what they themselves have experienced. And let me say a word for the ACLU disclosure. I'm on the board of the ACLU of Southern California. Even after the Supreme Court ends constitutional protection, there's still dozens of legal battles to be fought around the different parts of abortion rights. One of the one of the key ones involves the abortion pill. The abortion pill is good for up to 10 weeks, 70 days. But the Trump administration, Food and Drug Administration, required that all patients in the United States seeking the abortion pill had to pick it up in person at a medical facility. And the ACLU sued the FDA and won. And today the FDA has permanently repealed the in-person dispensing requirement. And that is a significant victory. And there's going to be a lot more legal fights like that, which are kind of low profile, but are going to affect thousands, millions of people. And so I'm a supporter of the ACLU also on the who to fund for abortion rights. Well, the pill is going to be a very big deal. In fact, it already is a big deal. It's very popular. I think almost half of the abortions in the United States are now performed that way. And there are ways of getting it, even if your state says you shouldn't be able to have it. So people should go to plancpills.org to find out more about that. You know, there is really, realistically, John, there's no way that California can go from performing 40,000 abortions a year to performing a million and a half abortions a year. Yeah. Um, there's going to have to be other other ways. And I think provision of pills is, is probably going to be a big part of the story. And one more thing that was in today's news here in Los Angeles, it's not really a what you can do item, but I, th I found it fascinating and a bit of good news in a month where we've had nothing but bad news about abortion. And this comes from, of all places, the Vatican. Remember, the Archbishop of San Francisco made a big deal out of announcing that Nancy Pelosi, who of course is Catholic and from San Francisco, would be denied communion because she supports abortion rights legislation. And of course, Biden is Catholic too. So this was a big issue with the Catholic Church deny Biden communion. Today, the Vatican announced that one of the 21 new cardinals will be the Bishop of San Diego, even though he's outranked by the guy in San Francisco uh, who denied Nancy Pelosi uh, communion. The guy in San Diego, Bishop Robert McElroy, issued a statement saying, criticizing his superior in San Francisco, he said, quote, the Eucharist is being weaponized and deployed as a tool in political warfare. This must not happen, close quote. Uh, he's also been a leader among U.S. bishops in questioning why the bishops conference insisted on identifying abortion as its, quote, preeminent priority. He suggested the preeminent priorities should be racism, poverty, and climate change, not abortion. And, the, and Pope Francis promoted him to cardinal instead of the guy in San Francisco. So there's a fight even inside the Catholic Church 
over how important they should make abortion and abortion politics. And Pope Francis has taken a step uh, in a good direction. Well, that's really interesting because in 2018, Pope Francis compared abortion to a mafia style killing and says it's it's the equivalent of hiring a hitman. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for thank you for that report. OK. You know, I just I think this Alito decision, if it actually happens, which I guess it will, I think it's woken a lot of people up. I don't know how long they'll stay awake because people have not historically been as adamant about abortion rights as I wish they would be. Um, But maybe now that the end of Roe is so close and it's going to affect so many people, I mean, 26 states, that's really kind of amazing. Maybe we're seeing the great awakening. Maybe we're seeing the great awakening. We have a lot of work to do in the meantime, and we have some great people and some great groups to work with in these battles. Katha Pollitt wrote about six ways to fight for abortion rights after Roe for The Nation magazine. You can read her at thenation.com. Katha, thank you for talking with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, John. It's always a pleasure. The Mexican Revolution of 1910. That's the one with the slogan, Tierra y Libertad, Land and Liberty. The one where Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata led the fight to overthrow Porfirio Diaz, who had invited investors from the United States to buy millions of acres of Mexican land and take control of Mexican railroads, oil, and mining. That revolution was sparked by a band of migrant rebels from the United States, the Magonistas, led by a brilliant radical named Ricardo Flores Magón. Now that story has been told by historian Kelly Little Hernandez. She holds the Thomas E. Lifka Endowed Chair in History at UCLA, where she is director of the Ralph J. Bunch Center for African American Studies. She's a leader in the fight against mass incarceration and author of the award-winning books Migra and City of Inmates. She's also the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award. Her new book on race, empire, and revolution in the borderlands has the wonderful title, Bad Mexicans. Kelly Little Hernandez, welcome back. Thank you for having me on, John. Well, everyone knows something about Pancho Villa and Zapata. I didn't know anything about the Magonistas until I read your book. Who was Ricardo Flores Magón, and how did he become the target of a joint U.S.-Mexico counterinsurgency campaign in 1910? So Ricardo Flores Magón was a journalist in Mexico, and he was part of a small group of journalists at the turn of the 20th century who were challenging the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz, and they largely were working out of Mexico City. And after Porfirio Diaz had attempted several times to suppress their their newspaper, Renacion, and put them in jail and in prison and smashed up their printing presses and actually issued a gag order prohibiting any newspaper in Mexico from publishing their words or articles. The gag orders issued in 1903. This group of journalists, dissident journalists, crossed the border into the United States, into Laredo, Texas in particular, to relaunch their newspaper, Regeneración, 
and hopefully organize a revolution against the dictator back in Mexico. And so what this book does, it tells the story of how they rebuilt their social movement on the U.S. side of the border and the efforts of the Mexican government and the United States government working together to suppress their social movement and to stop them from inciting a revolution. Now, why would the United States government get involved? Well, the United States government, um, through really significant U.S. investors, think about the Guggenheims and the Rockefellers, all the major names of the Robert Barron era, they had made major investments in Diaz's Mexico. As you had said, bought up millions of acres of land and come to dominate key industries from railroads to oil to mining. And they wanted to protect those investments. And Diaz had always been the one to protect those investments, so they wanted to protect Diaz. And so it's the United States government and the Mexican government working together to try to suppress a social movement led by journalists, but that's joined by ordinary people, cotton pickers and miners, migrant workers and whatnot. Let's talk about Mexicans in the United States in 1910. As historians, we remember the Mexican War of 1846 to 48 when the United States conquered a huge swath from Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, and a huge population of Mexicans were now inside the borders of the United States. So we're talking about 50 years after that, when the Southwest has a large population of people who originally lived in Mexico. Certainly. So there's the population of of Mexicans and indigenous persons and um, communities that were living on the land base that um, had been claimed by Mexico, but was seized by the United States after the U.S.-Mexico War. And then when you have the integration of the U.S. and Mexican economies that begins to happen really in the 1880s with the completion of a transcontinental railroad running north and south between the United States and, and central Mexico, Um, Then you also see the rise of mass labor migration from Mexico to the United States. And that's really happening at the turn of the 20th century. About, you know, 100,000 Mexicans are migrating in the early years of the 20th century to come up to jobs in the United States. And they're coming because foreign investors and, and major Mexican elites are displacing indigenous and rural communities by buying up and privatizing land across Mexico. Those displaced um, workers, you know, they go to look for jobs in towns, on haciendas, and on the railroads. And by the early 20th century, they're beginning to migrate north into the United States in search of work. 1910, there's also a socialist movement in the United States, concerned about a lot of the same issues of exploitation and democracy that the Magonistas are concerned about in Mexico. Tell us about socialism in the United States and the Magonistas' relationship with the Anglo-American and European socialists of the United States. When the Ricardo Flores Magón and his friends and journalists and the social movement begin to rebuild their community here in the United States, that's happening between 1904 and 1910, they come into contact with some of the leading radical voices in the United States. Think Emma Goldman having conversations with Ricardo Flores Magón in St. Louis was a hotbed of labor organizing and socialist politics. They're certainly influencing one another's thoughts and minds. And Emma Goldman, of course, is one of the great anarcho-feminists of the early 20th century. And Ricardo goes on to become an anarcho-feminist as well. He stands against marriage as a form of slavery. And so they're talking to each other, they're influencing each other, they're figuring out that there are 
transcontinental international relationships among workers and organizers that if the Rockefellers and the Guggenheims and others are um, playing an anti-labor role in the United States and they're gaining a lot of their capital and their profit and their power out of their investments in Mexico, that they have a shared goal, right, of challenging the power of these elites, which has extended across borders. And so um, Anglo-American progressives and radicals, especially members of the Socialist Party, by the 1910 had become strong supporters of the Magonistas. And they do a couple of things in particular. They help the Magonistas reach a broader audience by publishing um, books and articles in English in major progressive newspapers about the conditions of life and labor in Mexico. That's really important because the mainstream progressive Anglo-American population at the time, the early 20th century, had a vision of Porfirio Diaz as being a great reformer, right? He had brought stability to Mexico and they didn't know much about the labor conditions in Mexico. And the Magonistas, through their partnerships with Anglo-American radicals, helped to change that narrative in the United States, which makes it more uncomfortable for the United States government to support the Diaz administration and try to suppress the Magonistas. So you say this group of Mexican radicals and revolutionaries that had created a new base in Laredo sparked what became revolution against Diaz in Mexico. How exactly did they do that? So they cross into Laredo, Texas in January of 1904. And their first goal is to relaunch their newspaper, Renaracion. But within days of arriving in Laredo, they notice that they're being followed everywhere. And they knew that that was Diaz's spies. So they move to San Antonio and then St. Louis, where they are able to relaunch their newspaper. They establish a political party, the PLM, the Partido Liberal Mexicano. And they also begin to establish cells or focos across the United States that are both sub subscribers to the newspaper or members of the PLM, but also they're beginning to gather arms to ready themselves for an armed assault in Mexico. And there's a labor strike at a, a mine in Northern Mexico, in Canea, Cananea, Sonora, Mexico in June of 1906. And it's that labor strike which turns deadly against uh, the Mexican workers who are striking against an Anglo-American mine operator in Mexico that inspires the, the PLM to call for an all-out armed revolution in Mexico within one year's time. So between 1906, it's really after that uprising and when they issue a manifesto right, a program to the nation saying this armed uprising is not just about unseating Porfirio Diaz, but it's also about protecting labor rights for Mexican workers, about returning land to indigenous and rural communities that have been displaced through the Diaz regime, about ending child labor, about ending debt servitude, about protecting democracy, about this social and economic revolution. Well, the United States looks at that and says, oh, no. <laughs> and they get really busy. The U.S. Marshals, Department of War, the Attorney General, the Post Office, everybody gets involved, all hands on deck to do whatever they can to stop the PLM from organizing this revolution in Mexico. And you say that the Magonistas not only changed the course of history in Mexico, they opened a new chapter in the history of policing in the United States. Tell us a little more about that. 
the PLM is able to um, launch four armed raids into Mexico, one in September of 1906 and three in June of 1908. And it's immediately following the raids of June of 1908, which are the most lethal and stunning and damaging for the Diaz administration, that the United States President Theodore Roosevelt, along with the U.S. Attorney General at the time, Charles Bonaparte, they establish a new police force to be able to enforce federal law. What's the name of this police force? Police force is the one and only, at that time, Bureau of Investigation, which goes on to become the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So one of the really important parts about the Magonista story and how it relates to U.S. history is that the FBI, which goes on to become a counterinsurgency super force throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, um, really cuts its teeth. One of its very first big cases was chasing down members of the PLM and doing everything they could to suppress the outbreak of the 1910 Mexican Revolution. And then there's a huge and horrifying postscript to your story. El Plan de San Diego, an uprising in South Texas in 1915. You call it one of the largest and deadliest uprisings against white settler supremacy in U.S. history. I never heard about this. Tell us about it. Yeah, there's so much in this book um, that many people won't have heard much about. But I must say that there are many scholars who've been writing on these issues for quite some time, and I, I lean on their work. And the goal of this book is to haul that knowledge out of the academy and to bring it to a broader public. So Plan de San Diego, as you said, is um, an uprising that happens in South Texas in the summer of 1915. And this is right in the middle of the Mexican Revolution. And a group of Mexican nationals and Mexican-Americans get together and they concoct a plan that if they have already removed Diaz from power in Mexico and are on their way to gaining economic and a political revolution in Mexico, why should that not transcend borders as well? So they look north to Texas and to the United States. They form an army for all races and peoples. They recruit um, Black folks, Asian folks, and others to um, move across South Texas to assassinate any white male 16 or older and to seize land. And that the first lands seized by this army of liberation for the people would go to African-Americans as a sanctuary from white supremacy. And the next set of lands would go to indigenous peoples as a sanctuary from settler supremacy. Wow. It's an incredible vision and then would go to Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, but they wanted to really unlock the land from white settler supremacy. And so they begin their uprising in the summer of 1915 in South Texas, ripping up railroad tracks, yes, committing assassinations and more. And the response is extraordinary of the vigilantes, the U.S. Marshals, the Department of War begin to summarily lynch and kill an uncounted number of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans across the region. Historians and some folks have estimated that anywhere between 300 and perhaps as high as 5,000 Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were murdered in retaliation for El Plan de San Diego. And so you have two things that happened in the summer of 1915 and, and heading into 1916. Is one, one of the most significant uprisings against white settler supremacy in U.S. history. This army of all non-white peoples coming together. And you also have one of the deadliest 
suppression campaigns of that kind of uprising in U.S. history. And here's the shocking thing. So almost nobody knows it happened. Um, this is a, a history, Latinx history general, in general, Mexican-American history in particular, um, that has not gotten enough coverage in the canon of the American story. And so this book about this relatively small group of Mexican migrants who had a particular dream of the early 20th century, my hope is that it's part of a broader program and campaign to kick open the doors of U.S. history, to see so many of the stories we hadn't seen before, to think about how they transform our understanding of who we are uh, as a people. And one last thing, your title, Bad Mexicans, where does that come from? Bad Mexicans is a term that the dictator and his regime in Mexico used to describe the dissidents, the rebels, the insurgents. And so he would call Ricardo Flores Magón and his the members of his social movement bad Mexicans. And they were bad Mexicans, malos mexicanos, for challenging his regime. Now, of course, right, I knew the moment I knew I was going to write this book was the moment that we had another autocrat here in the United States, President Donald Trump, who had declared Mexican migrants to be bad hombres. And I wanted to provide a history as to what he was stirring up when he was using that kind of rhetoric targeting Mexican migrants, that there had been another autocrat at another time who had declared Mexicans seeking a better life for themselves and their families as malos mexicanos. And so this is a part of the shared story of um, the freedom dreams of Mexico's dispossessed and the attempts of various autocrats across time to suppress their, their social movements. Kelly Little Hernandez, her new book on race, empire, and revolution in the borderlands during and after Mexico's 1910 revolution has the wonderful title, Bad Mexicans. Kelly, thanks for all your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.